Today from the global lane, Iran launches a missile in the Persian Gulf and forms a new alliance with China. I think we're going to see more of these um, as we move deeper into the Cold War with China. Federal troops in Portland and other American cities. Police state rising. They're spreading out into the streets all over the town. Federal jobless benefits and stimulus checks. When and how much. Feared and beloved on both sides of the aisle. And lessons learned from the passing of civil rights legend John Lewis. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. Tensions on the rise in the Middle East as Iran's Revolutionary Guard fires a missile targeting a replica of a U.S. aircraft carrier. Iranian state television reported the missile was fired from a helicopter in a military exercise in the Strait of Hormuz. Well, joining us with more on this and the growing threat of China's alliance with Iran is retired Brigadier General Robert Spaulding. General Spaulding is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. General Spaulding, it's good to see you again. So is this missile drill just more blustering and propaganda from Iran, or how concerned should we be about it? Well, I think we're going to see more of these um, as we move deeper into the Cold War with China. Of course, they recently signed last week a strategic agreement with Iran. I assume that they're going to do something similar with Russia and other authoritarian regimes going forward. We're, the world's resolving into more of a bipolar arrangement where the democracies are all united around the United States. That was evident from the decision the U.K. made with regard to Huawei and then the other countries, the authoritarian regimes around China. So I think this is part of a pattern of behavior we're going to see quite a lot in the future. Well, on that, we receive reports that China has entered into an agreement with Iran to provide $400 billion to the Islamic Republic in exchange for discounted oil concessions and military access to an Iranian island in the Persian Gulf known as Kish Island. What does that mean for the United States, the Middle East, and the Strait of Hormuz? Well, I think it means a lot for the Chinese because they get discounted oil. And of course, it means a lot for Iran because they get out from under the U.S. sanctions. I think this is going to be an economic, a financial, a science and technology and data war uh, with the, the authoritarian regimes. You know, Kai-Fu Lee says that China's goal is to be the Saudi Arabia of data. So we're going to see a world much more focused on information systems and data and artificial intelligence than oil was in the 20th century. Well, then how should the United States respond to the growing alliance between Iran and China? Well, we're already doing it. We're strengthening our alliances with our allies and partners more in the economic, financial and informational realm. We already have strong security ties. I think we need to rebuild the industrial base of the United States. We need to secure Americans' data, both companies and individuals, from hacking from China and other authoritarian regimes. And we really need to inspire democracies to begin to grow economically again. We've been so invested in helping China grow, an authoritarian regime that's intent on oppressing its people and suppressing democratic principles abroad. Now we need to really invest in our relationship with democracies. And I think the Secretary of State is really doing that, and, and, he sh and it showed with the decision by the U.K. And the diplomatic dispute between the United States and China. Of course, the consulate's closed over Chinese spies in Houston. Uh, China expert Gordon Chang compared China to 1930s Japan. 
He warns about Beijing's dangerous activities against the U.S. military. So your thoughts on that? Well, I think one of the things we need to keep in mind is what happened at the end of World War II, and that is the uh, creation of nuclear weapons. So nuclear weapons make actual war very, very risky between um, nation states in the current era. And so China is a nuclear power. The United States is a nuclear power. Neither side wants to see their citizens or their cities destroyed. I think it's going to be much more focused on the economic, financial, science, and technological and informational aspects of competition. That's where the new battlefields of the 21st century are going to be fought on. Do you have concerns about them influencing the upcoming election, the Chinese hacking in? Oh, no question. They're already influencing our society. You know, you have Antifa and BLM that are very much Marxist organizations. They may not have the same ideology of the Chinese Communist Party, but they share the same disdain for democracies and free trade. And so we're going to have to instruct and educate the American people on the danger of foreign influence and also inside influence that would have us move away from our principles of democracy and free trade and rule of law and civil liberties and human rights. So, General, several U.S. military experts have told me that when it comes to China, it doesn't really matter who wins the presidency in November because the Chinese Communist Party is going to continue to influence countries, move into markets, expand its military around the world. Short of war, then what can we do to slow or stop China? It's really about protecting data. We need to lock down our Internet. We need to protect the American people from being hacked, from being influenced through the Internet. We need to promote our own industry. We need to promote our own economy, invest in America. We need to stop spending hundreds of billions of dollars in the way that we're spending them in the Department of Defense. We need to focus on a military that can deter conflict while at the same time building up our economic and industrial base and really the science and technology prowess that we enjoyed uh, dominance with in the, during the first Cold War. Okay, a big task ahead. Hudson Institute Senior Fellow, retired Brigadier General Robert Spalling. Always good to talk to you, sir. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Mayors of six cities want Congress to step in to prevent President Trump from sending militarized federal agents to their municipalities. The mayors of Portland, Seattle, Chicago, Kansas City, Albuquerque, and Washington, D.C. sent a joint letter to congressional leaders asking them to pass legislation that would prohibit the use of federal force without local permission. The mayors, all Democrats, are responding to the president's orders sending federal forces to Portland and elsewhere to protect federal property from rioters. Well, joining us with more on this is constitutional attorney John Whitehead. Mr. Whitehead is founder and president of the Rutherford Institute. John, it's always good to have you with us. You recently wrote a commentary saying, quote, the federal coup to overthrow the states and nix the Tenth Amendment is underway. Now, I'm assuming, unlike these uh, mayors, you have constitutional concerns, not political ones, about the use of federal troops. Explain to us, please. Well, first of all, we have to understand, most Americans don't uh, understand the Bill of Rights. It's not really taught well in the schools. We, and I, get, get to, I talk to lawyers who can't tell me. Basically, it was in the Bill of Rights. But the Tenth Amendment's really clear, that we have a federal system of government where the powers divide between local state and federal authorities. State and local authorities have control of their own towns in terms of their police actions and stuff like that. And there was great concern in Portland when uh, 
these special response teams came out in camouflage gears, came out with uh, all kinds of stuff that no one could tell who they were. A 53-year-old veteran named Christopher David walked up to him, a Navy veteran, and asked him who they were. They slammed him face down and kicked him around and threw him in a van. Just for asking a question, this is an American citizen and a former veteran. I can see why some of the uh, local authorities are concerned about these things, because you're having like secret agents move in. And some of these uh, special response teams that we saw in Portland that are going to be directed toward other cities are, are ICE agents with immigration, uh, Border Patrol agents. And Border Patrol agents have a long history of violating the Constitution. Most people don't realize that we live in a 100-mile constitution-free zone uh, on our borders. They're, they're raiding people's homes without, without warrants. We don't want those kind of people in our cities unless the cities have asked for them. And that's the key here. We want to respect our Constitution. The Tenth Amendment's really, really clear that what's not delegated to federal government is kept in the local governments. And without that, you have a large centralized national government that, that can move toward totalitarianism. And we're seeing that in some ways. When you have a veteran that can't even question an agent that works for the government who's paid for by his tax dollars, he's beaten up because he asked the question, we're in trouble, folks. Well, doesn't the federal government have the constitutional right to protect its citizens from violence? And I'm, I'm sure the president would say he's only trying to save lives, prevent the destruction of federal property. Well, again, I'll say this. The, uh, it's how they act. And these agents, like I say, the Border Patrol agents, the ICE agents don't respect the Constitution. So what local governments would like to have is their local police controlling these situations, hopefully skilled in the Constitution. But John, they're, John they're, not, they're not controlling it. The, these uh, situations are out of control. They're vandalizing and destroying, trying to destroy federal uh, buildings. Well, they're trying to destroy federal buildings. Again, if the police were there for just that reason, but they're not just there doing that. And what I'm saying is they spread, they're spreading out into the streets all over the town. They're not just protecting the federal buildings. If they were just surrounding federal buildings and saying, back away, people, that would be a different thing. But they're not doing that. And I've seen this happening for years, and I've been telling people, watch out with these constitution-free zones. And that's exactly what you're creating in some of these cities, where you can't even ask them a question. You, they won't even respond to you. They won't tell you who they are. And by the way, that's a secret government. In America, we have transparency. If, if we ask the policeman, who are you, sir? What's your, you know, what's your name so I can uh, know? That policeman is supposed to answer you. But when you have these special response teams that are dressed in camouflage gears and nobody knows who they are or who they work for, uh, we have a whole different situation here. And what I would say is, if the president's really concerned is, he would school these people properly in the Constitution before they're sent out anywhere, and he would work closely with the local governments who will probably permit this if they were schooled in the Constitution and they worked well with the local police. And that's John, what they need to do. John, I know you're right that uh, we're headed to a police state, so how important then, if that is coming... How important then is the Second Amendment? It seems that many people on the left are advocating restrictions, even the elimination of gun rights. Listen, <laughs> the reason you have uh, the right for the Second Amendment is to protect your property in that. And again, I'm, I believe that the Second Amendment is a valid part of the Constitution. Uh, we should be upholding that. Whether, whoever is calling for limiting the the Listen, the FBI, by the way, issued a report recently. We have the lowest crime rate in, in years in this country, besides what we're seeing with the protests. So American citizens are not violent. I'll go back and say what I said at the beginning of this interview is, 
Nobody knows seem to know what the Bill of Rights say. And the Bill of Rights protects the Second Amendment. It protects our right to free speech. In other words, Christopher, Christopher David, that man who walked up to the special response teams in Portland and said, can you tell me who you are and what you're doing here? And they, they throw him face down. Those guys don't know the Constitution, and they're not protecting the Constitution. Okay, plenty to think about. If people want to find out more, they can read your opinion article online at rutherford.org, correct? Right, and uh, my most recent book, Battlefield America, predicted all this. It's got all these things. I, I saw this coming for years. I've been yelling about this for years, telling people to get prepared. Get, your, get into your local governments, by the way. If you don't like what's happening there, and if you want to move the police out or whatever, the federal police... You can act and do it. The 10th Amendment protects that, folks. So use your rights. Okay, John Whitehead, always a good discussion with you. You provide plenty of food for thought. Thanks for sharing your insights. Thank you, sir. As members of Congress debate another coronavirus relief package, some discouraging news as some states roll back COVID-19 openings. That means millions of Americans are still out of work. Will Congress continue to provide the jobless with a $600 weekly federal benefit? Will it be reduced or eliminated? And just how much can you expect to receive in a second government stimulus check? Well, joining us is Financial Issues Radio TV host Dan Celia. Dan, it's so good to see you again. So we had two fantastic job reports, 2.5 million jobs added in May, 4.8 million in June, but unemployment claims are up again. What do you expect will happen as we near the end of summer? Well, I think the uh, we're going to see another relief package, that's for sure. And I think as we head towards the end of the summer, I think things are going to start picking up a little bit. I think that we're going to see uh, workers come back in. I think the new relief package that is being proposed uh, it, by, by a Senate GOP is going to incentivize some uh, to go back to work, that is going to that is going to be good. I was hoping for more of an incentive that it would incentivize companies to hire. It's not really doing that, but nonetheless, uh, I think that we're going to start to see things level off. I really believe, Gary, that the worst has happened. I think the record low numbers in pretty much everything that we have seen is going to stay a record low for a long, long time, and we're never going to see that again. So I do think that consumer confidence is waning just a little bit, and I think that's primarily due to all the, the hype of the uh, additional cases that we've seen in California, Texas, and Florida, three states that are pretty critical to our GDP and our growth. Yeah, huge states. Now, on the issue of the federal jobless benefit, the president and Republicans argue many people are earning more sitting at home than when they were working. So do you think there should be any continued federal unemployment subsidy? What needs to be done to get people back to work? Yeah, I think there has to be some, and I think there will be some. Right now, the uh, Republicans are proposing that they cut the benefit to 70% of the person's last salary or uh, $500 maximum. So I think it's going to be reduced some for some people. It could only be $200 a month compared to the 600. To others, it could be that 500. Either way, there's gonna be a little bit of a cut. But I think that's a fair system 
I think to those uh, more highly paid people, it's going to be an incentivized to say, you know what, this isn't working out. Uh, I'm going to have to get back to work. And some of those, uh, even some of the uh, um, more minimum wage kind of people, I think hopefully it'll incentivize them to get back to it as well. Yes, yeah, uh, no greater incentive than uh, cutting off the flow of money. Yeah. Treasury, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin says we'll likely see a second stimulus check in our accounts or our mailboxes probably sometime in August. And I know, Dan, you're not a big fan of these one, two, three trillion dollar stimulus plans because they run up our national debt. But do we even need another stimulus or is this just election year yeah. politics to gain votes? I think it's uh, purely election year politics. I think uh, President Trump, uh, you know, outside of an election year, I don't think he would approve of this. I think he knows, I think a lot of people around him know that uh, we don't really need it. I think the economy is opening up gradually and slowly. I think it's going to continue. Yes, we've had this bump in the road in the last, uh, you know, four weeks or so, three weeks or so. But I think it's going to get back uh, to people hiring again once we get through this this uh, time period, the protesting and all the other things. So I think it's election year more than anything else. Do I think we need it? I really don't. I think we need to wait. I'm not saying we won't need something later, but I think we need to wait it out until later and see what happens. And if we need it, fine. But I think this is opening the door to stimulus number three. And I, I think we, we would have done uh, ourselves good to wait. And before or after the election coming up? Well, it, it depends. I think what we should have done is really just look at the circumstances at hand and say, look, are we making any ground here in the economy? And frankly, we were. And I think we will again. And I think as long as they see ground being made people going back to work, the economy starting to open up again. I don't, I don't, I don't think maybe ever, or maybe it is in uh, December, but, uh, and maybe September, but let's wait it out until we know for certain we've got to have it. Okay, light at the end of the tunnel, Dan Celia, Financial Issues TV and radio host. Always good to talk with you, Dan. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us today. Gary, have a great week. We sure appreciate it. At a time when protesters demand that we tear down statues of flawed American historical figures, we could learn a few lessons from the passing of Georgia Congressman John Lewis. The 80-year-old civil rights legend made his final journey through the streets of Washington, D.C. this week, passing the Lincoln Memorial before lying in state at the U.S. Capitol. Although John Lewis skipped President Trump's inaugural and boycotted all but one of Trump's State of the Union addresses, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Republican members of Congress paid tribute to their deceased colleague, a man who changed history. John Lewis lived and worked with urgency because the task was urgent. But even though the world around him gave him every cause for bitterness, he stubbornly treated everyone with respect and love. All so that, as his friend Dr. King once put it, we could build a community at peace with itself. I think one takeaway from Lewis's passing is that we can disagree with a person's views, but also acknowledge and honor their accomplishments and influence on American society.
George Washington, the father of our country, is one example. Yes, he was a slave owner, but that should not mean we tear down George Washington's statues or erase him from our history books. Many conservatives were outraged by Lewis's advocacy of President Trump's impeachment, and they disagreed with his extremely liberal voting record in Congress. And although he was an ordained Baptist pastor, Lewis was an advocate of abortion on demand. But those who are offended, perhaps even outraged by that, should still pause to honor this man's accomplishments. During the civil rights struggle, Lewis was an advocate of peaceful protest. He chaired the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. In March 1965, Lewis joined 600 civil rights advocates and marched for black voter rights across Selma's Edmund Pettus Bridge. That day is now known as Bloody Sunday. Lewis suffered a fractured skull as Alabama state troopers assaulted demonstrators with tear gas, bull whips, and clubs. 58 people were hospitalized. Selma was the turning point. Lewis's efforts, along with those of Dr. Martin Luther King and others, led to President Lyndon Johnson's signing of the Voting Rights Act the following August. The legislation outlawed literacy tests and other nefarious efforts that restricted the voting rights of minorities. Yes, Lewis's lifetime struggle for civil rights helped edge this nation closer to achieving the original intent of our founding fathers stated in the U.S. Declaration of Independence. He helped advance the idea that, quote, all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Lewis fought to make sure that commitment was more than only words on parchment. But he also insisted that the nation had a moral obligation to impeach Donald Trump. While many Americans disagreed with him on that political stance, many today would agree that we have an obligation to honor a civil rights giant who helped transform America into a more just society. Thank you, Pastor Lewis, for your unwavering leadership and advocacy of peaceful change. Your struggle is over. Ours will continue as you enjoy eternity in paradise. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Parler, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.